0: Hello and welcome. I'm Ariana Rivera-Lee, and I'm the programming coordinator at Zocalo Public Square. At Zocalo, our mission is to connect people to ideas and to one another. Everything we do is free and everyone is welcome. We publish original writing and present conversations like this one. Find us at zoclopublicsquare.org and all the main podcast platforms. If you enjoy today's discussion, Like it, follow us, or subscribe. We're about to hear from scientist and author of The Alchemy of Us, Anissa Ramirez. She will be discussing why great breakthroughs in innovation demand greater understanding. I'm thrilled to introduce issues in science and technology senior editor, Lisa Marganelli, who will be moderating today's discussion. Over to you, Lisa. Hello.
1: <clears throat> Welcome to Zocalo Public Square. My name is Lisa Morganelli. I'm the senior editor at Issues in Science and Technology magazine. And <clears throat> we're a quarterly journal that's published by the National Academies of Engineering, uh, the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine, and uh, Arizona State University. And we're very delighted that you're here today. Um, We're delighted to partner with Zocalo to present today's conversation, and the title of that is, Do Inventors Bear Responsibility for the Effects of Their Inventions? Joining me is Dr. Anissa Ramirez. Anissa is a materials scientist who began her career at Bell Laboratories. Um, She worked as an associate professor of mechanical engineering at Yale and she's now a science communicator, writer, and author. She hosts a podcast called Science Underground and her writing has been published in Forbes, Time, The Atlantic, Scientific American, American Scientists and Science. Um, Her work has been honored by the National Science Foundation, the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, Massachusetts Institute of Technology and the American Institute of Physics. Her most recent book is really uh, quite incredible. It's called The Alchemy of Us, And it examines how eight notable inventions from clocks to uh, cables, to film, to uh, Morse code, to the telegraph, uh, have changed and shaped the human experience. And then in turn, we have created new technologies. And it's this sort of, to read the book is to find yourself kind of embedded in this ribbon of inventions and history and social changes It's really excellent. Um, She tells stories of lesser known inventors, um, and you can find a link to the book below. I'm really excited to be speaking with you, uh, Anissa, and thank you very much. Thank you so much. So nice to speak with you, Lisa. Yeah, so um, we're going to talk today that the big meta topic is you know, what happens when inventions go wrong or how do <laughs> how do inventions impact society? How do we think about that? Who's responsible? Are inventors responsible? Is somebody else responsible? Um, and uh, so we're going to talk about all that and unanticipated effects. But before we do that, I really want to dive into kind of uh, invention and the whole, the life of invention. So you, started your career. So first of all, you're a material scientist. Material scientists are like super inventors, right? What, what does a material scientist do? A material scientist,
2: well, you know, the great thing about science is that we always say what the, what we do in our name. So we focus on materials stuff. And uh, so we're interested in how atoms bond, but then we're also interested in the resulting properties. So the reason why your cell phone is small, the reason why the, 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 the glass doesn't break very often. You know, those are, someone has thought about that and it's usually a material scientist. So we're really interested in designing the right material for different
1: applications. Hmm. So do you think about, do you lie awake at night and think about molecules?
2: Yeah, well, when people ask me on the, you know, in an elevator, what I do, I say I'm an atom whisperer because what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to figure out how they operate how to get them to do new things, how can I coax them if I, you know, if I heat them up or if I make them this way or if I add other things to them, will they behave differently? So yeah, we're,
0: we're
1: in the business of uh, trying to coax atoms to do new things. Wow. So um, tell me, so did you start off your life wanting to be an inventor? Well, I was a kid that took stuff apart. So I don't know if I wanted to invent,
2: but I really wanted to know how the world worked. And sci- I always gravitated to science because I really wanted to know why things happen, like why did leaves change color? I really wanted to know the mechanisms behind the world. And uh, later on, I got the, the idea of becoming an engineer because being a scientist was cool because it was learning. But engineering, you applied some of those things that you learned. And that felt good to me because it wanted, I wanted to be practical about some things. And then later on in my career I started inventing things and and it was fun it was just you know you sit down you have ideas or sometimes even when you're not sitting down you could be doing something else you could be walking and an idea comes to you and you try and figure out how to make it happen in the laboratory so so that's kind of how I'm wired I'm a real I'm a
1: problem solver interesting all right so you so you you got a job at Bell Labs like Bell Labs is so amazing (laughs) like we all live in the world that Bell Labs made they pretty much (laughs) <laughs> radio astronomy, right. Uh, lasers, right. photovoltaic cells, Unix, transistors, right. did I mention lasers?
2: Yeah, you mentioned, I mean, and also what's making this conversation possible is the microphone, which was created by Jim West, he's an African-American inventor. That all happened at Bell Laboratories, so a lot of huh? the things that we take for granted were made at Bell Laboratories.
1: Um, so what's it like the first day you show up at, the, um, at Bell Labs? What happens? Well,
2: you have knots in your stomach. You're pretty nervous uh, because if you're a junior scientist, you're not going to know any more than anybody else. In fact, my laboratory was across the hallway from a Nobel laureates laboratory. So you're like, okay, you, you better be on your A game. But when you realize that people really don't look at other people that way, they really look at the quality of your ideas. You just realize that you just have to work really hard and make sure that you have very, very strong ideas and you can back them up. And I've had a chance to work on all kinds of different projects just because I had an idea and I could kind of support the idea and talk to different groups. So so at first you're very nervous because you don't know the lay of the land. But when you realize it's just, uh, they call it the idea factory. Once you just realize it's the currency's ideas and your job is to make them happen, then you you it's really a beautiful place to be.
1: So what kind of ideas? I mean, (laughs) I can come up with some ideas. So do you go in there? And they're like, Okay, you've got three molecules, (laughs) take them off into the corner and do something with them? Or are you working towards a particular purpose? Or are you just what what's the goal? The answer is yes, get organized.
2: the answer is yes, there's people are doing different things, some people are doing things that are specific to an application, like we need to make this better, please work on that, um, other people are just having pie in the sky kinds of ideas, I wonder if this is possible, um, so so that happens a lot, and how it's broken down is that material science has some disciplines. so there's people who work on metals, there's people who work on ceramics, there's people who work on glass, and so materials, and so Bell Labs is kind of broken up that way too, that's in the materials group. And then you have the physicists and they're kind of working on all kinds of different things, applying, you know, looking at uh, how small can you make a transistor? Like what's the smallest size? Because then that will tell us how uh, how complex will computers be. So they're just trying to figure out how much space do you need for information to get across. So those are interesting problems, but they also have an application. So it requires a lot of theory before it gets to the practical side. Uh And so when you went in, what were what were you assigned to? Oh, man. What was I assigned to? Uh, well, I chose a group that was really, the, my, my boss was really prolific. He wrote a lot of papers, had a lot of patents. And I said, well, I want to be in that group because I'm going to learn, learn a lot. And uh, we, were making a, we were making a range of different materials. Uh, we wanted to figure out, see, when you make materials really, really small, the physics is completely different. So we kind of wanted to map out how they behave at the small scale, because why we were interested in the very small scale is that we wanted to make very small switches because that's how you can route a, del- a telephone call.
0: Mm-hmm. So
2: you, know, you can do it in a big scale, like it's the size of a shoebox, but if you wanna make it the size of my thumbnail, you have to make everything, you have to miniaturize things. And when you do everything you thought that worked one way doesn't work anymore. So you kind of have to map out how
1: different things behave. So that took a lot of work to figure that out. Interesting. So, and then how did you, so but how did, how does the process of invention happen? Well, it's a lot of trial and error, which is, you know,
2: fail a lot. So let's say, I'll give you an example. When I was at Bell Laboratories, they were trying to figure out how to make these very, very small mirrors. Now this may not seem like much. The mirror was as big as, you know, the, the head of this pen. That's how big the mirror was. All right, so mirror on our scale, no problem. You can make it very easily. But when you make a mirror that scale, this is what happens. It curls, uh-huh. and that's because there's a lot of stress on this side of the on this side of the mirror. So you have to figure out how to coax those atoms not to be so stressed out. We want you to be like this, and you're like this. So for me, I said, well, maybe if I coat the mirror on this side and on this side, it will it will flatten out. Well, what uh-huh. happened is it curled that way. Right. So that didn't work. So what I did is I said, well, what if I keep coating each side alternately alternately? see what happens. And that's what got it to be flat. So it's a lot of trial and error. And that's just figuring out how to stop making the mirror from f- being flat. Then I have other problems I have to solve.
1: Can I ask you what you use a tiny, tiny mirror like that for? Well, great question. What we want to do, and this is an old project,
2: so I don't know if it actually happened, but when we route light, what we do is we have, uh, when we your phone calls on a beam of light in an optical fiber, that goes into some box. The light is converted into electricity and the electricity is Pushed in the direction in the direction that you want it to go, and then it has to be converted back into light so it can go out another optical fiber. The idea is keep it all as light. So you have light; it hits this small, small mirror. The mirror turns and sends it to another optical fiber. So it's super, super fast. And that was that was what the physicists came up with, and then the material scientists had to kind of make sure that that actually could work.
1: Uh-huh. All right. So, but. <clears throat> we have this idea that, that's really interesting. So we have this idea about science that, I mean, it's even a joke, like step back. I'm a scientist. The idea is that <laughs> the scientist and and notice that I just put on my guy voice, um, <laughs> but the, but it, the idea is like science is, you know, cool, cool, rational, doesn't get excited. Is there drama in there? Oh man, there's a ton of drama, ton uh, people are cutthroat
2: people. How does this present itself? So, if you're working on something and you're a scientist, what you want is you want your name on the paper or you want your name on the patent. Well, people would be inadvertently left off a of paper. That is that is going to give rise to a lot of tension. So there's a lot of drama like that. Also you can have within one organization, people competing on the same topic. Mm-hmm. That's gonna to give rise to a lot of tension. And so there's a lot of drama, a lot of drama. It's not for, and then, you know, Scientists are humans and, you know, you can have a really bad boss. I've had some experience with really bad bosses. And, you know, so, so there's a ton of drama, even though scientists are come up, they come off as one dimensional. Uh, no, they have all the failings of a human. And sometimes they're enhanced because they really haven't had a chance to um, polish those skills.
1: Let's talk a little bit about the myth of the scientist. Like what, it, what are the, uh, not the myth of the scientist, but the myth of the, myth of the inventor you know, hmm. they work alone. Yeah. Nope. Tell me what else, what, what other, that's, myths that's you... not the true. Uh,
2: yeah, they, they work alone. Uh, they have a spark of inspiration that, you know, that just, you know, strikes them like lightning. Um, let's see, there's, those are, and they're men. That's the other one. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that's not how I operate and I'm none of, none of those things. I, you know, at, at Bell Laboratories, you have a scientist, he, he or she would have a bunch of people in their group that they work together. There's also technicians. People don't write about uh, technicians, but technicians are amazing. Um, I had a fantastic gentleman that I worked with. His name was Robbie Felder. He was an older gentleman, African-American, and we really resonated with each other. He was sort of like, uh, like a distant uncle in a lot of ways. He was so smart with stuff. And he had this pile of junk in the back hallway that no one was allowed to throw out because he would make stuff with that. And so I would be talking out loud, you know, it'd really be nice to be able to coat these mirrors on both sides. When I come back from lunch, I ought to figure out how to do that. So I'd go to lunch, come back. He's already built it. Okay. So that's that's an amazing technician. So So nobody's working by themselves. Even Edison has the myth that he's the lone genius. He had Dozens and dozens of people he called the muckers, people who actually did the hard work that gave rise to his thousands of patents. So that is definitely a myth. And uh, yeah, at Bell Laboratories, we kind of know that that's not the way science operates. But outside of that building, people believe that to be
1: true.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. I guess we'll get later to, you know, I wonder why we have that, why we have these myths. But let's go, let's get on to the inventions and having unintended effects. Because that's what we're here to to talk about is is you know are the inventors responsible, Um, and I think uh, you know we oftentimes even here we talk about this in a mythical way. We talk about inventors, you know, when an when an invention has an unpredictable effect um, or bad effect. That's like the stuff. That's that's what our horror films are about. That's what a lot (laughs) of science fiction is about, and a lot of it is kind of based based on these sort of biblical ideas or or old you know former myths that really have nothing to do with technology they're about you know tempting god or or um you know trying to do something that humans don't have the right to do um, but there is this much larger issue in the real concrete sense that we're all living with of what happens when things that we invent and innovate you know kind of go wrong right um, right or even they have the good effect and they have the bad effect too right. um So you wrote a piece for us at Issues that will come out in the next couple of weeks, uh, this wonderful piece about blue LED light. So why don't you tell us, let's just sort of dive into blue LED and talk about how it got invented, what it was, Right, right. I mean, it's why we're we're talking, right?
2: That's right. I mean, yeah, blue LEDs. I mean, it's amazing. It got the Nobel Prize in 2014, and rightly so, because it's definitely green technology. Uh, If you look at old incandescent bulbs, uh, they generate a lot of heat. In fact, one of the problems that they had when LEDs were first installed is they put them in traffic lights. And uh, where I live in New Haven, uh, there's a lot of snow. And when they had incandescent bulbs, they didn't have to worry about clearing the snow off the traffic lights, but now we have to because the LEDs are just so cool. So, right. so that's, you know, so, so they're fa- a fantastic technology. Um, but what I learned while writing The Alchemy of Us is that it ends up that we as humans have a response to light, which Edison did not know. And probably the scientists that were working on the blue LED did not know. Um, but, you know, we should have bluer light in the day and redder light at night because we have a growth mode and we have a daytime mode. And uh, if we're in growth mode where we have a higher metabolism, temperature, and amount, of, and the amount of growth hormone in our bodies, our cells are going to respond to that. So there's a whole range of health ailments that have been linked to having the wrong kind of light. So what I discussed in issues is that uh, the blue LED is this wonderful invention, but it also highlights a deficiency in science itself, which is that we don't look at the broader issues of our invention. Um, the,
1: let me back up just sure. a little bit. Yeah. So we now live surrounded by blue LEDs. Sure. But that only happens, that's only happened within the last 20 years or so. That's right. So that's right. The, the people who got the Nobel, they were like working away. There were red LEDs and there was another yeah. one. Yeah. The, well, uh, back up, tell term, us a little bit more. Oh, in term,
2: the, terms of the history of light. Well, there was, there was the incandescent bulb. And then we had those uh, fluorescent bulbs and, which, are, which also generate a lot of blue light. And then we had com- compact fluorescent bulbs which kind of look like little light bulbs but they're kind of yeah. like this squiggly thing. Yeah. And then now we have the LED uh, the blue, and, the L- and the LED light. And that got the Nobel prize in 2014. And so what I was just saying is that uh, there has been this correlation between our health and the lights. And the compact fluorescent bulbs uh, w- were the onset of this issue because they generate a lot of blue. But now that blue LEDs are pervasive, they're in street lights. Everyone wants to have these LEDs because they're really cost effective. Uh, you can reduce your electric bill with these things um, and they don't house mercury like the compact fluorescent. People have really embraced them. So this is the issue that we have this wonderful light, but we haven't addressed the fact that it also linked, there's a linkage between light and our health.
1: Yeah. And so when the... Um... Like when, when, this was, when the inventors were working, were they aware of the impacts of blue light?
2: That's a good question. Like, I don't know what was in their head, but I do know that the thought about the impact between light and health was definitely in the ether. People were talking about that. But mm-hmm. we as scientists tend to be so siloed, like, you know, the person who was working, the, the gentlemen who were working on blue LEDs, um, and there were hundreds of people working on it. They're at the Materials Research Society Conference and they're at the American Chemical Society Conferences and they're there to kind of get more information about how to make these bulbs better. They may not be talking to you know, health physiologists to figure out what may be the impact of the light. So we're very, very siloed. And so that's the thing I wanted to emphasize is that you know, they're doing great work. It was extremely hard to make the LED. You have to make these multiple sandwiches Uh, you have to kind of coax atoms we talked about being an atom whisperer you have to coax the atoms to land a certain way by changing the gas chemistry so it was not for the faint of heart to create these blue leds and so it's definitely worth uh, getting an award but now we have to figure out how to live in a healthy way with this wonderful invention and so that's what i'm trying to highlight when i i actually wrote about that in the alchemy bus Mm
1: -hmm. and and it's really interesting because then as they rolled out into the world so, so more and more people complain about having sleep disturbance because right. we're you know, staring at our phones and our computers <laughs> late at right. night right. and we're surrounded by blue LED light and, um, and we're all having trouble sleeping. Um, but then it kind of goes one step further, which is that we install them on all the street corners right. because they make great street lights except for right. one thing. So tell us a little bit more about
2: that. Sure. So, so, our, so our cell phones generate a lot of blue light. Um, and I have to say that the blue LED is often in com- combination with red and green in order to make white light. So it's just not, it's not by itself. But uh, cities really were trying to figure out how to reduce their, their spending. And one of, that, one of the things they want to do is reduce their electric bill. So they got rid of all those bulbs that they had and they put in blue LEDs. But the downside of the blue LED or blue light in general is that as you get older, it's harder to see. Uh, It has a tougher time going through our lens. And so what we're doing now is by having all these street lights and highway lights with blue LEDs, uh, we're actually making it harder for more senior drivers to to see. Uh, What they're seeing is uh, the stuff that doesn't go through their lens actually comes off as glare. So that's putting them at harm, but it's also putting all of us at harm because well-mean, well-meaning people may be driving at night and unable to see and may cause some kind of accident. So, so this desire for more efficient bulbs is definitely well intentioned, but it wasn't well thought out.
1: And so, how would we think that out well? Like, I mean, well, I don't think we could go to the Nobel Prize guys and say, <laughs> "Hey, you're hurting my grandmother," <laughs> <or> which is <laughs> soon to be me, by the way. But. You know,
2: <laughs> No, well, what we can do is, I mean, mun- municipalities could use different types of light. There are other types of light bulbs that are out there uh, and that are made. So we could change the types of lights that, were, that are out there um, to, to make sure that senior drivers and, and all of us actually have a better time. Uh, it's just that we're just so hard headed and just purchasing these one types of light because we're really just focusing on the bottom line. We want to solve this problem that is reduced cost and we're not thinking broadly. And it, and it could mostly be that people just don't know uh, they don't know that there's this impact. When I have people read uh, my book, they're like, I had no idea that you know, I've changed all my lights because of this. So I really think there's a lack of knowledge. Mm-hmm.
1: So I guess this kind of gets up to this more systemic question of mm-hmm. how do we think about inventors and companies or conglomerates and the scientific system and the, um, you know, purchasing by municipalities and public health. I mean, you, there's, mm-hmm. this is not, we, we pitched this as a story about inventors, but it's really about how do all these things interact? Right. And, and how do we think about getting inventions from here into society
2: mm-hmm. and
1: thinking through that, the ramifications? Um,
2: it's a good question. What, what we have is a a lot of flowers, but no garden there's an ecosystem, but there's no one who's just and 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 we want to have it open because inventors want to be able to do what they want to do but we we have an FDA we have things that monitor uh, different things and so I think there needs to be some kind of organization that's just keeping an eye or at least making those that connective tissue uh, you know between those two different things uh, program managers that you know uh, at granting organizations, they sometimes provided that connective tissue. You know, hey, so-and-so is working on this. You should talk to so-and-so because they're doing something similar. But we, what we needed is on a much, uh, much higher level scale. Like, hey, I see people are working on this. Do they know about that? We ought to connect them. Uh, you know, some, some, some high level person should be doing that on some, on some level. Because scientists, they ought to be doing that, but they're not. And so there ought to be some way to kind of have those con- kinds of conversations so that people are aware of how their invention will live in the world.
1: So that's, let's, that's one thing. Let's, let's just, uh, let's talk about how scientists think and can be made to think differently mm-hmm. in a second. But let's just kind of dive into this question of how do you create the garden and how do you create, I don't know, the bee. <laughs> the, the the creature who oversees the garden and thinks right. about how all the parts play together. You know, we that's it's a really interesting idea because in the United States, the FDA does that for drugs, but we don't do that for like, um, in the federal highway, there's, you know, there's an interlocking set of rules for federal highways and mm. street lights and stuff like that. But I don't think that we actually had someone testing the streetlights and saying, do they work for everyone? Mm
2: -hmm, mm -hmm. So, yeah, well, we need, we need that. That's what we need. I mean, the FDA is definitely certain for drugs, but when innovations are launched into the world, there's someone who should be interrogating them. I mean, even, even things like Facebook, uh, things go wrong. I mean, the internet is a wonderful tool, but then there's some really bad things. Did anybody think about that? Did we put any fail safes? So um, there needs to be some regulation of some sort. Uh, I don't know if um, the government's ready for that, but that's de- definitely what needs to happen. And we're learning about that not only with gadgets that are with us, but also with more sophisticated things like AI and facial recognition software. So we definitely need we definitely need some regulation.
1: So, and do you see that as something that is? government or industry or something like, you know, there used to be, I don't even know if it still exists, but there used to be the good housekeeping seal of approval. Right. Right. I was never too clear who they were, but, (laughs) you know,
2: (laughs) they're real people. I mean, they would have their own test kit. That's what we we need an independent test kitchens. I've always said that, you know, we need to, you know, bolster consumer reports and just say, look, test all these things, uh, rate them for different aspects, not just also for cost and efficiency and how much, but, you know, well, is there bias? Does this have any health effects? And, you know, do it. Someone needs to do a deeper dive, maybe some investigative journalism to kind of really figure out these things. Uh, but we need to support those organizations. You know, uh, good housekeeping um, came from subscriptions. Um, Consumer Reports is probably supported by subscriptions, too. We need mm-hmm. something that's and, and they didn't take advertisements because they really wanted to be independent. So we need some kind of organization. So for all the philanthropists who are trying to figure out what to do with all that money, here's what you can do. Here's what. Here's your idea. See, I
1: think that's a really interesting idea, and I think the other thing too is that you know just from a policy side, mm. um, when a federal, whenever a federal contract buys something, it has mm. to meet a bunch of standards, mm. and that same thing is true at state levels. And those federal those federal standards impact state le- standards and kind of also lead local municipal standards. So you could potentially have some sort of public-private thing Mm -hmm. that kind of worked through this and talked about things um but now i want to kind of go back to did you want to say more about that well i was going to say it's just the
2: wild west right now if if i make an app all i have to do is make that app and then just put it on a vehicle to get it out to other people it's not you know maybe it will get reviewed by people but the reviews are a little different than yeah this is a good idea and it's good for society um, so yeah, but there isn't anything. It's just it's a you know there's no there's no regulation
1: for that. It's really interesting. You know, before the good ha- we we think of like as though the good housekeeping seal of approval has always been around. But um, I was reading recently about the history of the clothing the clothes iron. And you know, in the beginning, they were mm-hmm. heated up on the stove. They were actual mm-hmm. irons heated up on a stove. And then there were there was electric. There were some right. that were kerosene. I think there was a natural gas one. And I think. <laughs> I think wow. I read that for 40 years, people considered the electric ones to be too dangerous, <laughs> which is wild because people are, you know, ironing with a flame. <laughs> 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 so it takes a while to set these procedures up and these institutions, right. but it doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. Right. Um, I think another th- question is kind of how do, how do we teach Young inventors and engineers to think about this. And tell me how you were taught and and what you're thinking about now.
2: Well, I had to relearn how to do science because, you know, I, I learned the concepts. I learned maybe about the inventors and they were like, okay, go at it. Don't think about where that material comes from, if it might be setting up a geopolitical storm or if it might be toxic. It was more about, is this going to give me the best property for this invention? And it's only after, you know, you know, ha- having to be reeducated where I'm learning, okay, well, let's choose materials that are earth abundant, and doesn't require clearing out a mountain, or doesn't, ha- you know, or I think about it's longer term life, is it easier to recycle? But that was later in my life where I figured that out. So scientists aren't really trained to think that way. Uh, maybe they'll have a, you know, a unique situation where they think about those things, but oftentimes the, the courses don't, don't propose it that way.
1: So what caused you to rethink everything? Well,
2: I just—I mean, I've always kind of had that leaning. I just felt like it was absent. So it was absent in my education, uh, but it was also after like interacting with other the people who are working in sustainability that I was like, wait a minute, you know, I should be thinking about that. What am I doing, you know? So it was only after you know meeting people and being exposed to other people that uh, that it became part of my own um, learning. But if I never met those folks. It, it probably, I probably would have continued to do things the way I wanted to do because look, if you wanna be on the cover of science or nature, it's gotta be the thing that's the best or the most unique. And those may be, require very esoteric materials to make that happen or may require processes that no one else can really do. And, and uh, as a result, what you're doing, may, be, you know, you may be, uh, it may be very resource heavy to make that one thing. And, uh, and that's fine for the cover of science, but if you wanna manufacture this, you can't do it that way. So it, it really requires thinking a little differently. So how would you institutionalize that? Well, you know, what we need to do is we actually need to talk a little bit about where things come from and where things live after we're done. So when I study material science, let's say we're talking about the transistor. Oh, there's a fantastic story about the transistor and how it was made at, at Bell Laboratories and all the things that happened to make that happen. Well. What we should also be teaching students is like, all right, tell that great story, but also tell them where the material came from, what are the processes to make that material, and then where does this thing live after we're done with that computer? That will give them a fuller picture, you know, you know, cradle to grave. Um, I think that would help give them some sense of of how they should choose things and and what they should consider. Okay, well, this material is hard to recycle, so maybe I won't choose that material. It's not as efficient as this other one, but I know that it will it's better for the planet. So we need to have that kind of thinking in there. And I think if we learn more about where things come from and where they go,
1: that will kind of encourage that thinking. So does Science Magazine need to rethink it's what it's gonna publish? Well, its
2: I mean, it's supposed to show us the latest and greatest. It's a North Star, which tells people, this is the direction you should go. And then we should tweak um, how to do that. I don't think scientists do that, but ele- this is what you should be shooting for. And I would say, okay, can we find the way to do that? That's sustainable. That might be the next, the next layer. So no, their, their mission is to show the latest and greatest and to inspire and to show what people are doing so that it can give us a new set of tools to figure out or explore or look at problems in a new way. So that's their job. But, uh, but scientists don't know that there's another way.
1: You know, it's interesting. It's, a, it's also really hard to imagine what's gonna happen to your, to your invention and, and it can blindside people. When I was in college, I, I took a class, it wasn't rocks for jocks exactly, but it was sort of like biology for, I don't know, non-human non-living <laughs> forms, I don't know, um, <laughs> maybe biology for rocks. Anyway, the guy who <laughs> taught it was this amazing botanist named Arthur Galston. And Arthur Galston had set off in the 40s to feed the world. He was mm. experimenting with plant hormones and he was getting them to grow tons of foliage. And then he discovered that they would grow tons of foliage and then all the foliage would fall off. Mm. And so he had inadvertently invented uh, you know, a, a very powerful herbicide and it later became Agent Orange. Wow. And s- therefore he subjected himself to, teaching, you know, biology for the rocks because Mm. uh, he felt very, very, um, Mm -hmm. he clearly had been very heavily impacted by this. This was a guy who wanted to feed the world and his Mm -hmm. invention had completely left his hands. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it seems like we put a lot of pressure on the inventor in part because we don't have any other backstops you know, we, we associate inventors so much with the thing through that myth mm-hmm. that we don't have these other sorts of institutions.
2: It's a good, it's a good point that you make. We don't have uh, something to kind of be in between or to, so yeah, that, and that's, that's extremely hard. It happens a lot where you can invent something and it escapes your hands. I remember talking to uh, Jim West uh, because I'm working on a children's book. And he's the gentleman who created the microphone. And I and because I was thinking about this, I said, "Well, Jim, is there any way that your invention is used that you're not happy about?" Because he was listing all these great places: stethoscopes, and you know, hearing aids, and microphones, and, and uh, cell phones. And he says, is this "Well, like an
1: electronic microphone.
2: It's an electronic, It's the condenser microphone. It's the you know the the piece of uh, there's a membrane that as you your voice your hits it, it moves up and down, and it's sensed, and that's what creates uh, that." Gets converted into electricity. So he created a the very, very small version of it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called a foil electret. And he says that this was uh, adopted by um, the military for surveillance.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And uh, he's like, he didn't want to talk about that. He's like, yeah, I'm not too happy about that. So, mm-hmm. yeah, um, you know, we don't, we're scientists are supposed to invent and we hope for the best. But again, as you say, there's no backstops. And so I think we ought to explore how to, how to have that happen what would be a backstop? Besides this consumer reports things that I want the, yeah. the philanthropists? Um, yeah. Well, I think that uh, you know at Bell Laboratories, you have the engineers, the scientists, but then they also have managers and directors. And the manager is kind of there to just shepherd these great minds. But I think the directors who are often members of you know, societies, they should be thinking a little bit more high level. Um, Mm -hmm. so maybe we could be training them a little bit. I know they have plenty on their plate, but they should also be thinking about this ecosystem and linking people like their, their job should be like, okay, Jane, you're you're working on this. I want you to talk to Alice because she's working on this and you're in completely different fields. They should be creating that kind of, um, uh, network and also saying, well, be careful if this might happen with that. So is there any way that you can design this out so that it doesn't get misused, uh, Mm -hmm. or at least have people consider it
1: yeah that's interesting so is there a role for for regular people is there a role for people in churches to talk about like how this go you know what our values are the future that we want how do you how do you see that working
2: that's a great question and it doesn't happen so much in the united states but in other countries they actually have dialogues between scientists and the general public Uh, and they have to be honest to goodness dialogues. It's not just the scientists saying, well, this is what I know. And I, I use that same male voice that you were talking about earlier, <laughs> you know, and I just want to share what I know. It's really like the scientists will explain what they're doing and the general, per- the you know, there's a group of people at the table, they're expressing, they're learning about it. And they're like, well, have you considered this? And could it be used for this? Like they're providing some input. So it really is a conversation. If we had more of that, that might that might help scientists from being so siloed and just, I mean, they're, it's important for them to focus, but for them to also consider the bigger picture. When I was a graduate student, I used to focus on this small bit of a larger problem. And I think that as scientists, we continue to want to live in that space, but we really need to realize that it's part of a larger context. And I think that such dialogues can do that. Is the larger context terrifying? It's not terrifying, but it's too much for the brain. You know, you're really focused on this small thing, right? Focusing on those mirrors, it seems very simple right now, this, 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 but it took a year to figure that out. And Mm. if I, you know, figured out that, oh, well, this also could be used in nefarious ways, I would just give up. All right, forget it. I'm done. I'm going to work on something else. So you need that focus. So that's why you need someone who's a little, you need the gardener to, to kind of make sure that those pieces are put together. Uh and another another thing that i wanted to say is that you know since those dialogues don't happen in the united states that's the reason why i wrote this book because i wanted to empower people to start having those conversations because right now technology is going one way and we're just kind of accepting it and so by showing simpler inventions how they impacted us people will feel emboldened to ask questions going forward so so we need those dialogues and i think that writers and podcasters and magazine editors can can provide those opportunities because that dialogue
1: isn't happening naturally. One of the cool things, um, well, one of the many cool things in your book was <laughs> how also workers can be involved. And I mean, we all are watching kind of as workers at Google and some workers right. at Facebook are kind of starting to say like, hey, hey, mm-hmm. hey, we mm-hmm. don't do this. Mm-hmm. But there was this, you know, kind of amazing story about that, about some workers who, who, Uh, stood up to kind of the Steve jobs of their time. Um, Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Who made, who was making Polaroids. Can you tell us the story of the Polaroids and um, and Carolyn Hunter?
2: Sure, sure. So one of my favorite characters from the book is Caroline Hunter. And and in 1970, she was a 20 something year old African-American woman who was a chemist at Polaroid. And as you say, Polaroid was like the apple of its day. And, you know, Edward Land was like the Steve Jobs of his day. So she's working like the it company. And all, not only that, she's working on the IT project. If you remember old Polaroid camera kind of film, it kind of looks like this. And at the bottom is this uh, goo, that's the official name. It's like this buttery paste that's squeezed onto the film as it exits the camera. So she's working on that. So she's working on the IT technology. But one day she's going to lunch with her friend and they see a mock-up for an identification card. And it says, Department of the Mines, Republic of South Africa. And they're like, what? Because this is 1970, South Africa has got this apartheid system. And what they find out is that all Black South Africans have to carry with them a passbook. And this passbook monitors and controls where they can go. And at the heart of the passbook is a picture made by Polaroid. So Caroline and her friend Ken Williams didn't think this was right because, you know, in the 70s, uh, labor unions were a little stronger and workers felt more empowered. And they were like, our work, our hard work should not be used in nefarious ways. So that's why they felt empowered to go talk to the management to say, to alert them in case they didn't know, and also say that they didn't think this was right, that this technology that they've worked hard to make uh, is being used in this negative way. So I, I encourage that people who are you know see something that they also say something. There's a long tradition of workers pushing back saying, this is not right, my labor should not be used in this way um, and, and see if they can make some modifications. And, and this is what Caroline and Ken ended up doing. And they did it for like years. Seven years. Personal cost. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Like they lost their jobs. Uh, Caroline Hunter told me that she was blackballed in that city. So she really couldn't get a job. Uh, she didn't do science anymore. She was an administrator in a high
1: school. Uh, but, uh, you know, but
2: she and was they, the Rosa Parks they, they, of her
1: day. And they, you know, Land was this guy who really, he was magical. In his head.
2: Yeah, he was a mag- He had this just like jobs, he had this aura. Like people called him Dr. Land. He never even got his, his PhD. Like he had that kind of aura of this, you know, mm-hmm. magical wizard. So people really respected him. He brought a lot of money and a lot of jobs to Cambridge. So here they are, you know, David and Goliath. You know, it's a it's one of those stories. But uh, and it's the 70s and uh, you know, African American people against this very large corporation. It doesn't seem like a a viable, um, a, a viable fight, but it took seven years. They, they mobilized, they talked to student groups, uh, they, let, they let church groups know, they went on the news and uh, just let people know. And people just kept asking questions and stockholders would start asking questions to Steve, uh, to, to, sorry, not Steve Jobs, but Edwin Land about what are you doing in, in South Africa? And so he was getting pushed in all directions and eventually they just had to withdraw
1: it was a really interesting story because it seems like such a modern story. It's about embarrassing the company. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about uh, figuring out what the sort of points of moral leverage are mm-hmm. in there and, mm-hmm. and using them. And, and also kind of, you know, at one point, Lamb says something like, they're messing up my plan. <laughs> and-
2: <laughs> yeah, and I, I heard that. I was, when I was in the uh, Harvard archives and I'm listening to the tape of the stockholder meeting, which is a very, very boring meeting. And when he said that I was like, "Hold, stop right there," and I just was very <laughs> delicate in making sure I wrote it exactly the way he said it. So um, yeah, he was he was a scientist that wanted to just create. He, it's the opposite of what we're talking about right now. He's like, mm-hmm. "Leave me alone. I don't want to talk about office politics or racial politics or national politics. I just want to create great technologies. I don't want to hear this other stuff. You're you're harshing my mellow, you know." And uh, and they were like, "No, you can't because you're." oppressing 15 million black South Africans. So you have to get out of the laboratory and make a decision.
1: Yeah, it's such an interesting story and and inspiring too, because it really suggests that if people set their minds to it, they can really move huge things. Absolutely. And and I think this is, we're about to wrap up here, but what I wanted to ask you about was like, let's just kind of go back to that myth of mm. who the inventor is, and the inventor as this sort of exalted being. I mean, Land just stepped into that. Like he, he. I mean, he was a, he was a dropout, and he let people call him doctor. Right. And he uh, didn't he have like Edison's lab or something? He had like a oh Alexander Graham Bell's um, Alexander Graham yeah, Bell's lab. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he had like taken on this whole this- mantle of the genius inventor. Mm-hmm. Um, and how does that? How does that separate science from democracy? Well, if we have
2: groups that are powerful in a certain part of society, well, then we have a problem. Just like we talk about oligarchs, the same thing with science. And uh, we don't need that. We need to have people, to be democratic, we need to have these conversations going back and forth. We need to have some oversight. Uh, so, And we need to maybe perhaps vote on should you be working on that? You know, okay, that's great, but do we really need that? Because there's some people over here who are kind of hungry. Why don't we put that money over here? So, um, so there's a lot, lot of things missing in science, and it's been kind of set aside because it's science, and that's really smart people, and we can't figure out what they're doing. So, and they're doing important stuff because they always they're they're sending us to space. But there needs to be a part where where people are part of that conversation, and and that's the reason why I'm I'm in the business that I'm in.
1: Thank you. This has been just. Such a great conversation. I mean, it's totally sobering, and both scientists and the public, I think, have a lot of work to do to sort of get our act together. There's a lot of new uh, technology coming into the sort of human space in a way that there hasn't been. We, have, we face a lot of challenges, including the, this pandemic that's like...
2: Mm-hmm
1: right outside this screen that we're talking on. <laughs> right. and, um, and, and there's, you know, lethal autonomous weapons and there's CRISPR and there's uh, synthetic biology, all of these amazing things. Um, Anissa, it's been wonderful talking with you. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you. The book is Alchemy of Us. It's also over her shoulder. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, want, I want to thank you for this conversation and to everyone watching, thank you for joining us please visit Zocalo's website at zocalopublicsquare.org and to read a summary of this talk um, and other essays and articles and for other conversations like this one. And you can also come to issues.org uh, and you will be able to read uh, Anisa's article fairly soon, like in the next two weeks or so. Um, and, uh, and you can take part in other conversations and uh, other discussions of what is the proper role of science and technology in society and how can we as little humans uh, and and citizens um, work to implement the kind of future that we'd like to have. So thank you again and have a wonderful evening. Thank you.